Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we get to interview Caitlin McGaw of the Grammy-nominated Alphabet Rockers. Stay tuned till the end for a sneak peek at a new song from their upcoming album. I am so grateful, Caitlin, for you to take time out of your very busy, multitasking, flex mom kind of a day (laughs) to chat with us on the podcast for... Those of you who don't know, Caitlin is the founder and one of the main artists of the Grammy-nominated Alphabet Rockers, a group that makes music that makes change for kids. And the other asterisk side note is that I've actually known her since college. So even though me, Sasha, who I've known from college, did not know Caitlin, who I knew from college, I'm really excited that we're all three of us here having a conversation about something that really means a lot to us. Me too. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Where to begin? I mean, I guess let's do a little background on why I have asked you to spend this time with us, Caitlin. You know, you and I rediscovered each other in one of those wonderful moments of social media where, right, we were like, oh, wait, you're doing this work? Oh, wait, you're doing that work? And we figured out how our worlds intersected like two decades out of college. And It was really cool because in the community that we're in, it's a predominantly white community, and we were looking at how to bring more diverse conversations into the mix for the kids' schools. And Caitlin, you guys make music for schools. Schools are a primary audience for you. And we did a great Denver tour. You came and you sang at my kids' school. You performed at a lot of schools in the Denver area, which then led to a continuation of these kinds of conversations through the Denver area. And ultimately to this podcast, right? It was cool the way you framed it, too, because you brought an equity lens to the whole initiative so that it wasn't just about the schools that could afford it. You went out of your way to fundraise and create relationships with a lot of different schools so that we could. How many schools did we do at the end of it? I think seven or eight, in addition to multiple community conversations with parents who both needed folks to step up and talk about race and racism and folks who were like, how do I step up? So it was really amazing to partner with you because sometimes people only do what they're comfortable with, especially when influenced by white supremacy. So you were a good example of how to stretch. Thanks. And let's talk about that for a sec, though, because when you talk about teaching people, let's, I mean, nobody can see us right now. You identify as a white woman. I do. And what brought you into this conversation in the first place? Well, yeah, it's interesting because I don't think I really thought, I don't think I'd raised consciousness as a young, young person. I definitely knew about issues of economic separations and disparities, but it wasn't until I was almost 14 years old where I really acknowledged my whiteness and had big questions about white culture even. And it was frankly through a program similar to like what an Alphabet Rockers program would do, but it was for high school students to dialogue about race and gender. It was like an isms is how we talked about it in, back in the 90s. And um, I was really open-minded, but, you know, I went through a very flash quick stages. And maybe this is what happens when you learn younger is like, I didn't have defensiveness, but I definitely, I wonder if it was fragility. I definitely cried, but I had a lot of anger and questions of like, why didn't I learn this earlier? Like, did my parents know this? Like, do they know that like, what whiteness is do. And, um, I think that's really where it started. And I did a lot of work on my own and within the black community in Massachusetts and the multiracial community that I was a part of 
which were all young people. So it was 14 to 19 year olds. And we just would grapple. We'd call each other out on stuff. Microaggressions were a part of our like daily hangouts. Like we would kind of unpack stuff that would be, Hey, you're doing that. I noticed you're doing that to me, but you're not doing it to that person. And we just like had the very open dialogue and that kind of is what brought me into Harvard. And uh, Harvard, of course, is like a cloak. So you don't get to really unpack in the same way. So I had, you know, I, it became much more about social activism. And there was just so few of us at school. <laughs> it was kind of a lonely experience, to be honest. And I was in the African-American Studies Department. And um, it was still very isolated. As a white person at Harvard discussing this stuff, you mean? Not even, you know, it was actually not even as a white person. It was just more there were so few people that would talk about racism. And that was in the late 90s. So I felt like it was, yeah, I felt like it was kind of quiet. Like, and maybe that's the consciousness over time that now the students would not like, you can't get away with anything. I feel like people have a much louder voice. And that's like, that is what I find hopeful. But I know, like, I went back to visit a professor and he was like, Caitlin, you're not he's like, you were one of the only people. I'm not giving myself credit. I'm just saying like, I was like, man, it was really lonely. He's like, that's because there wasn't that many people talking. And he's like, it's, okay. you know, it was kind of a relief because I was like, did I not, this is getting way back into my personal story, but like, how did I survive that? Or how did we survive that? And, um, you know, and I'm a privileged white woman, a privileged cisgendered heterosex, whatever. And it was still, isolating because the culture at Harvard is really intensely white male and um, preserving the white male's sensibilities. Hey, what's up y'all? It's the morning. Let's get get in there. How's your morning drive going? (laughs) Uh, I do Before we go on to other stuff, I have a question about your childhood then, because some of the stuff you said were, oh, you're talking to this person like this, but not to me or vice versa. Mm. It sounds to me like you didn't just have white friends. You had a diverse group of friends. Yeah. And honestly, that was only in through my youth group. Still at my own school, it was still mostly white identified folks. And it was diverse white folks. So we have Armenian, Estonian, and then Irish. My, my community was like mostly like an Irish cultured community, Irish American. So we had ethnic parents, but we we're still assimilated as white people. And we still will all unpack this when we look back at our childhoods because every of all the folks that I grew up with, everyone's doing this work. I mean, we, when I see people one-on-one, they talk about how they're a part of the black lives matter group at their high school that they work at, or they're a part of the diversity initiative. That's really looking at equity. So it's interesting to see that even though in that group, there's like a consciousness, but all of these conversations were in a multiracial group that was like from kids from all over Boston. So it sounds like exposure is important. If you realize that you're around people who look the same or maybe even think the same, it's important. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about dear white women. You can't just learn from white women. Like, that's the problem for me. Like, I read these articles that white women write about racism is real. I'm like, yeah. And so now you have a black child, so racism is real. But it was real your whole life. Like, and so part of my life has been like really recognizing And for me, it's mostly been, for many years, it's been Black voices and knowledge that has made me who I am. So I will cite that at many places and speaking opportunities is like, that has framed my brain. And so when people question, why did you do African-American studies? What is the value in it? Which is racist. 
I, that's the answer is like, it gave me an entire framework for understanding the complexities of America. And, you know, I would have done a multi-ethnic studies program also at Harvard, but they didn't have it, right? They had um, East Asian studies, African-American studies, cultural studies, and cultural studies was more like the, it was like almost too bookwormy for me, but was actually really deep. But it's still, and it had more of a queer framework, which I thought was beautiful. But yeah, it, it was trap because <laughs> like you didn't get to do everyone. There's so many lenses to be human. And I prefer, I mean, for now, my life is transitioning from like a place of black freedom as the source to also like really stretching into indigenous frameworks because of the folks I'm working with on this album and also looking at folks from a gender diverse perspective and looking through history at where that lens can bring us to understanding, like breaking up the binary in ourselves and decolonizing our minds. Those are big words, dude. Yes, yeah. dude. I know the thing I say, <laughs> does it sound nerdy or does it sound like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so given that background, and then you've always been a singer, like you just enjoy music. And you decided to combine these two to create this group. What made you target a children's audience? Yeah. You know, did you ever hear the album Free to Be You and Me when you were in like the 70s? Yes. All okay. the time. Okay. Yeah. What did we it did mean? it at school, actually. We put on the whole Free to Be You and Me. It was my class and that was it. They did oh, it wow. one time. But yeah. So What yeah. grade were you in? Third grade, maybe. Okay. Something, elementary school. About that. Where was that in Cali or? Yeah, in LA. Okay. Yeah. So I listened to the album on headphones, like growing up. Mm-hmm. It was like my nap time album. And I just like close my eyes and think a lot about it. And it gave me a framework for feminism that my family re- also reflected in practice. And so when I was becoming a musician here on like a shoestring, I was like, what's, you know, I feel like the young people deserve more music like that. And at the time, actually, to be honest with you, it was like early, mid-2000s. I was like, I don't even know what social justice means to young people today, like the young adults, because I was that far removed already just in my practice. And um, so I started with looking at equity and using hip-hop as a framework for equity in the classroom and researched a lot of stuff with teachers. And it wasn't until we started performing that we were able to really reflect what the community needed in terms of social justice, racial justice, and conversations about our humanity. And now it's so easy for us to know what to do. Like, it'll be an edge point. It might be discomforting, but we're like, we know the community needs a subject in music. We know a child in the school needs to see themselves in this media. We know what's transformative about a song that celebrates dark skin featuring black singers and dancers like we know what that does for all of us it's it's undoing and then it's also like it's reminding you of your truth yeah so it's now it's just a beautiful practice of life i'm very lucky that i'm a part of it (laughs) it reminds me when you say the representation it reminds me of like why black panther was so big and crazy rich asians you're like oh actually when you see somebody that you admire or is creating something. It's the same way that we needed female role models when we were going through work. And just seeing yourself reflected is so important. So it's true, because your co-singer, I don't know what you and Tommy, your business partner, your performer, you know, Tommy is a black man. Mm-hmm. And DJ Wanway is a Hispanic Nicaraguan. man. Okay, right? 
Yeah. I remember when you performed some of the kids and he did one song in Spanish and like uh-huh. that story. I mean, I'm sure you have these over and over and over again, but the kids who come up afterwards being like, oh my gosh, like I speak Spanish in my house and you did this in front of everybody else. And that means so much to me. You realize when you take a step back and listen to the rest of the music that's playing on all of our radios all the time, it's not always as reflective of the diverse population of kids that we have in this country. So I love that you have that. Well, also, I feel like our pop singers are like, aren't always able to flex like their full identities, you know, based on the capitalism of the market and, you know, what they feel like their audience needs, but they might do it like on Twitter, but they might not do it on in other ways. Yeah. And we don't have that. We're like very much authentically, you know, and that's honestly, the music has helped us do that too, because when we were touring like five years ago, we'd be talking about nutrition and we're still ourselves, but it was also like, we wouldn't be able to bring like what happened in the middle of a show. Like we were singing about the food calculator and a kid, a little one asked Tommy like why his lips were brown. And we didn't have any music or media to take that conversation and make it the center of the stage. Right. Instead, we had a side conversation where he was just like, well, I'm brown. And the little girl was like, oh, okay. And then her brother turned to me and was like, am I brown? And I was like, well, what do you think? Look at your your skin. What do you see? And he looked at his skin and he was like, yeah, I'm brown like Tommy, you know, in his mind. Because <laughs> then we took pictures and he was like wiping his face and was like, I think there's dust on my face. And he was the East Asian, like second generation kiddo and didn't have like just felt identity with and proximity with Tommy, which is beautiful, but kids also naturally play with race and connection. So for us, it was like a signifier that like, we don't want to just leave it as, oh yes, and we are all the same. Cause what does that do, right? That lie has perpetuated so many things that keep, that make kids unsafe and also make white people, make people unsafe, all other people, you know, not to other, but makes it the center of the white person's mind instead of like truly the majority of the planet. We're all the same. Or like I'll hear a kid say after an assembly once, you know, you can be different than me. It's like, okay, (laughs) that's not the point, but this is no kid. (laughs) You can be different than me. (laughs) So it's thick. That's like the, you know, when you guys are writing, dear white women, like talk to your kids as, early as they're born in the womb about the world around us. Like, and, you know, as early as yesterday, talking to a parent who was like, I didn't have an answer at the preschool interview about talking about race with my kids. And I was like, we'll start doing it. Like your kids three. That was the age. I mean, I shared with both of you the story of the crayons when it was before like Crayola came out with a skin color tone collection. And my kid was two or three and was, coloring and she said oh can I have the skin color crayon and I could have just glossed right over that but I was just like okay time out oh what does that look like what's a skin color crayon oh the one that looks like me well what color are you and from that point onward she identified her skin as peach so she calls herself peach skinned and I'm like all right cool but you realize but I was you know I pulled my arm next to hers and I said well our tone is a little bit different and yours is a little bit different than daddy too we each have our own skin tone so there's no one skin color crayon And that was when she was two or three. And I felt like that was, I was very proud of myself for like on the spot, basically catching that teaching moment or just a, a, not even a teaching moment, like a conversation moment because kids get it. 
And, you know, when a lot of like white parents ask, like, well, how do I do it? And you're such I mean, you're naturally curious and beautiful modeler of just getting to know people on a deeper level, Sarah. But like, I think the question asking is really how you unpack stuff. Like, oh, I wonder what makes you see this as like, I mean, for a kid who's like, though, this is the skin color. I wonder what makes you think that we all have the same skin color. You know, I wonder if it's exactly the same. I wonder if we, you know, like there's so many ways that you can get in there without feeling like you're preaching. That's a good point. It's not like teaching. That. Yeah. It's cause it's, it engages the kids natural curiosity too. And it teaches them as a general life skill to be more curious if you're asking these questions. Right. And then also there's stuff that we don't know. Right. Yeah. And so modeling, like, I really don't know about that, but it's, it makes me nervous. I want to learn about it. Or, you know, you can name your feelings with it because that's what we want them to do. So you're going through performing at schools. You do majority performances for children and you interact with children. And you, I know you have a great, you know, prep package for the teachers and then afterwards follow-up questions and that sort of stuff. But what types of schools do you find resonate the most? Is it, like, I don't even... I already know. You all know this because you like intimately look at how your kids are being raised in their school. The principal, well, how the principal treats the teachers is how the teachers will treat the children. So if you're looking for equity spaces, like principals who are ready for radical love and radical change, and not just not mean you have to have like anger at the center of it. It's actually about like true love and seeing each other and like unpacking our stuff, being willing to change, being willing to be wrong, all of these things like that translates through the classroom cultures. So when we've shown up at a school where the principal, like in Michigan is a great example. We did a, a, a racial justice initiative. It was around desegregation. And we walked into a school, the principal truly loved every child, knew their name, had like very kind ways of reaching them as humans, not as you know, pawns or like, there was no power differential. There was just like, we're coming here together to do something. And that school was like, really, they were all ready for everything. The music reflected how they felt about themselves. And then we'd go into another school where the principal might be so overwhelmed by the systems that they weren't able to nourish all these parts. And when that happens, you know, we can only do as much as we can do. But when young people have had the chance to experience a piece of media with a teacher that reflects on it, then when they see it the second time, there's more context. And then when they see it the third time, they think, oh, this is me. And when they see it live, then they're like, well, you're doing my song. So then we're not performing. We're actually reflecting your brilliance. And so then that's the magic is when, we, when we're able to actually reflect to young people what they already know to be so completely true, that they're powerful, that they're beautiful, that they have a voice that we want to hear, that their questions matter, and that they can stand up for someone who doesn't look like them. So that's the difference. And, you know, honestly, y'all, like today, we're dealing with something where there's, and this happened in another school where they didn't want us to perform a song about immigration because they felt it was too political. And, and we said, we will not perform unless we get to do our full offering. And in that case, the superintendent backed us up. And we brought the Alphabet Rockers here for their entire program, and we will be presenting their entire program. And I think the teachers and principal felt a little bit, they didn't like that, you know, which I understand. But I also, how do you feel if you 
only center one person's narrative in equality and you don't have the courage to do the tougher parts for you. And, and we're going through that again today in San Francisco. There's a venue that we're supposed to perform at in the end of the summer. And we're doing a new initiative called the Butterfly Effect. And it's a an arts activism project from 10 and 11-year-olds who are in the alphabet rockers or in our community that want to make an arts representation of the 15,000 children currently detained by the U.S. government, separated from their families. And so we're doing, we're, and we invite y'all to do this, is to make butterflies, like color in butterflies. You can construct them from all recycled crafts. And then we're going to be displaying them at museums around the Bay Area so folks can have a pictorial understanding of how many children we're talking about. And one of the venues we were partnering with said, this is too political. And I said, we won't perform. Like, we are political. We're going to stand up for trans kids on stage. We're going to stand up for black and brown children. And we're going to stand up for these 15,000 children who are detained. And it's not about politics. Our humanity is political. And it always has been. But right now, there's no way we cannot see it because of the current administration. And the way that people are doing things like simple things like this, like, well, this is too political, so don't do it, you know. And these are children's activism, by the way. <laughs> right, you're not even silencing so, adults here, right? Like you're telling kids, <laughs> no. oh, don't yeah. think, don't be compassionate, that's too much. Yeah, 10 and 11-year-old activists. So It's interesting to me about, we just, Misash and I just did a, an episode on the camps and how we just need to reach into our humanity a lot more and get over some of it. But it's sad that... We are currently at a stage where feeling human and feeling like we want to look out for one another becomes a political thing. So like a, a party or a policy kind of thing. And it's hard. I don't know any of the answers for any of this, but at the very least to allow compassion to shine through doesn't seem like that can harm anybody. Because that was what I was going to ask. What is the biggest pushback you get? But it sounds like right now those quote, hot button items, if you will, immigration or children separating, that sort of stuff seems to be what you're getting pushback. The on. pushback is around immigration and transgender and advocating for transgender folks. We've had schools that they, another school when we were on the road that said you can't talk about trans issues in the school. And honestly, like we are only now able to create music that and media that reflects that. But at the time, you know, just it's such an indicator of fear and fear divides us. It doesn't serve us. And fear is a great tool of white women as well, because we are afraid of losing power, of losing acceptance, of being seen as mean, of being seen as B-I-T-C-H. Like these things that white women are taught, if you're nice, if you're good, then you'll be rewarded. But those also mean if you comply if you don't say that something was wrong, if you are sweet instead of stern about what your needs are and what you see, like all these things, it's really sad because that's what keeps the system going in really painful ways. It's like, well, I will, I'm not comfortable saying that whoever these people were on this committee for this venue saying, you can't make butterflies at our events. <laughs> and we're talking about arts and crafts. We're not even talking about like, how these kids are like, this is the voice we have and we do not accept what's happening and we're not adults. We can't vote or we can't protest in person in Texas, you know? Yeah. I think we've been taught a lot to look the other way. And this also goes back to the point about the others. Like we are 
so taught to look the other way that there is a separation between sort of us and others. And it's such a striking rebuke on everything that in theory we stand for as a country that it is heartbreaking, especially to hear in a city that everyone views as such a progressive city like San Francisco, that this, that children's art and children's voices are being silenced because it's an issue that makes people uncomfortable and because it makes people think about their own humanity and their own choices. So yeah, I just, the whole thing is just, I have a whole bunch of emotions, hard to put into words. I like what you're talking about, though. So uh, there's an organization in Colorado called the Colorado Youth Congress, and it's only in its first few years. And then there's also Peace First. I don't know if you remember from back in the day, this is a Boston-started organization. There's these groups that are evolving to empower children to do something about the emotions that they feel, about what is right in the world or wrong in the world, and teaching them that, you know, if they want to, if they're sick of police violence, you know, one of the school, one of the programs had sponsored, financially backed, a kid who wanted to bridge the gap between students of color and the local police force, and basically did, like, brought a group of students in to meet with the cops. Like, kids are doing stuff, I guess is my point. And we're so used to, and I feel like I was always taught, oh, you'll be something someday. And as opposed to deferring children's potential for later, they're there now. Like, we just need to listen to their brilliance. Because... You're so right. Because <laughs> isn't it all of... I mean, if you think about an itty-bitty kid, they come out pure love. And it's our beliefs and our systemic stuff that gets put on them that changes how they show up in the world. So if we can tap into children's brilliance more and more now and support them within their developmental capacity and really listen to them, I think that it surely can only be good, right? And I'd rather raise a generation of compassionate children to, you know, run this country by the time we're old and gray, as opposed to carrying on this divisive, hate-filled thing that's also happening in this country with some of the youth. So, yeah, and I think people, I will just, you know, speaking as a white woman familiar with how whiteness is constructed, like permission to pass and not participate is a part of continuing systems of oppression. And I think a lot of, I mean, parenting is not easy. It doesn't matter who your child is. It's a very, like, it's transformative for as a caretaker. And so there's a lot you're going to go through. But like, I think that we don't have patterns in white culture of how to pass things down. And I know every culture has their own in the American environment of like, how do you pass down resistance? How do you pass down self-love? Like every culture has their own narrative and white culture doesn't have a framework yet. I don't think for passing down that kind of compassion, there's a compassion that that's unnamed that leaves a lot of gaps. So I mean, I was just thinking yesterday, my child was like, we, you know, in the homelessness is, is a huge issue in the Bay Area. And my child was like, we were driving yesterday and he said, you know, mama, those tents are where people live. And I was like, yes. And so his dad and I are both like separately having conversations about what we see when we drive and uh, we narrate the world. And I was like, yeah, and there's something you can do now 
to for people who are currently homeless and you know it's like because he likes talking to people so I was like whenever you see someone you can say hi what's your name that's what he can do right now he doesn't have anything he can offer and frankly is not a very good sharer but I was like you can guys <laughs> when we have food we can share our food and there's going to be more that you can do over time and I was like and daddy and I are working on other solutions because his dad works on affordable housing in the Bay Area but you know, it's just thinking about like a lot of times when we started this work around racial justice, the families were like, or the kids would come to school and only mention cleaning up the earth. Like, this is something I can do. I can pick up trash and I could give money to the homeless. And this is possibly privileged schools. But those were the two answers that were given to us as like, how can you be a change maker? And what I do know is that has, has evolved. We've evolved and the music has evolved, the context. And, um, young people see themselves as much more capable of impact. And that's a good thing because it can't be just picking up trash. That feels like we're in the eighties, you know, it's like, where does the trash even mean now? It's like, we have climate change as like our young people are teaching us about that, you know, mm-hmm. but we're looking at humanity. So I love that. I'm going to take that with me too. Like don't defer the young person to someday you'll be, you'll do, you know, mm-hmm. that's beautiful. Okay, the other question I have about some of your performances, Caitlin, you know, I remember you telling me the story about a, I don't know if it was a PTA, but it was a wealthy white area in California where they asked you to come to talk to the parents. Mm, Yeah, more than once we've done that. So what do you find hopeful about that? And what do you find sort of shocking about the things that come out of people's mouths? You know, honestly, uh, we have not been shocked at these conversations. Tommy and I really show up with a hugely open heart. And um, I think that what I'm not sure what people bring to this space, but I think that's where they land as well. We can't be surprised that people have never thought about race before because we know that to be true. We can't be surprised when a parent tells us something racist they did because we witnessed it, right? in that person, but in someone else. But we did go to a school where we, in the moment, discovered ways that, you know, models that could evolve. Like a parent said, you know, I witnessed something racist on a field trip three years ago where the kids were mocking a Japanese wedding. And I didn't say anything. And, you know, we, I don't know why the parent decided just now to share it with this small group of parents. And I said, you know, your kids remember you not saying anything. And as much as you do, they're still, they still remember that. So you could absolutely talk to them, talk to your child first and say, Hey, you know, a couple years ago, this happened. Do you remember? And I really made a mistake. I can't let it go. And this is what I wish I had done. Is there something I should do now? And they can collectively think of some sort of way to bring more love to that moment of pain for other people. And also then talk about that with the parents of that witnessed, you know, they would not know because kids don't come home and share everything with their parents. Right. So there's a bold moment of that has to be done in person and not done over email. Like we're so the email world or the Facebook world, like the comments become just, you know, it's like slapping each other back and forth, but it has to just be a place of vulnerable space and just be willing to also have people not forgive you. And it's okay because that's in their time. But that was a beautiful moment. We haven't had too many people come out 
and say stuff like that. We've had one parent say, you know, I hadn't thought about race until, you know, this past year in front of a very diverse community. But, you know, people just want to witness, like, who's here? Like, okay, now you're talking about it. I mean, we have, in some ways, I feel like folks have pretty low expectations. They're just like, yeah, good. Now what? You know, let's keep going. And so, yeah, I've really enjoyed those experiences. And I, it's weird, too, because I think part of whiteness is like being right. And so there's not like, a, here's your five bullet points you'll get for, and here's your trophy you'll get for. It's just more like you're showing up and we're not the experts. Like listen to folks in the room who are people of color, like let that lead the conversation forward. So that's kind of what I think is a model for people to take with them is like be vulnerable and be okay not being perfect. I love that. Um, Misasha, that me reminds too. me of the conversation we had with Debbie Shear, where she also said like in person, I mean, that's, it seems like it's coming up over and over again is like real life in person conversations and vulnerability are so critical for difficult conversations, for learning and for growth, for real life. I mean, I bet if we heard ourselves saying this stuff when we were kids, they'd be like, there is no other way. Like in such a short period of time, we've deferred so much to technology that, right? It wasn't this way when we were kids. It was the only way it was to have in-person conversations. You had to pick up the corded phone and dial the number. <laughs> like, so Yeah, we didn't leave this in voicemails to each other or whatever they were no. answering machine messages. Yes, <laughs> yes. And those messages, you press play and it plays to the whole house. So you still had to be polite. It was no like headphones listening to the voicemail machine or the answering machine. Yeah, so I mean, it's such a short period of time and it's so important for us to remember our childhood because how we it would be easy for us to now raise our kids in this new realm of technology and not remember that actually we do need, not everything can happen on technology. We do need to go old school, how we were raised and have real life conversations in order for things like this to change. Yeah. You're making me realize that I have to pick up the phone and figure out how to meet all these people at this venue and talk to them. One other thing that I've been kind of, reflecting on so my family my husband's Indian our child's mixed and as a birth child and has very light skin so but our family here is all mostly Indian and Jewish so and then the extended alphabet rockers family is mostly black and anyways that's our community black and Chicano and Filipino those are our family gatherings (laughs) but I'm realizing that like as like one of the only white people in the group that sometimes I'm like asking, like, what am I, I know times where I'm supposed to step up and be like, talk for us. You know what I'm saying? Like when somebody's confronted us, like it's, let me take that on and just make sure that it's a, an area that I feel like physically safe. That's it. Like when we were in Michigan confronting this school, like I definitely was like, I want to walk first in the parking lot because I didn't know what we were going to be facing. Now that I'm pregnant, I'm not going to be doing that, but with this situation with like a very small arts and crafts booth. Yeah, it's worth making, doing the show up because if it's a matter of changing people's minds about something or creating more connection and more empathy, then that's really it. I mean, when people sit down and we create more empathy, unfortunately, it's that that's really the root of it is like, it's not just having one friend who doesn't look like you. It's like understanding somebody who doesn't look like you, like really understanding now I'm curious, though, when you say you're going to take the lead, like, because there could be so many reasons to do that. One is because the system is rigged and you th- might think that they'd listen to a white person more 
or is it because people who are identified as persons of color in this country, like, so often have to do it that you want to take some of it off, right? Like, what motivates? Yeah, I think it's responsibility, actually. And it's, you know, of course, case by case. There's times where, and the question is, do you need me to stand up for you or stand by you? And in these cases, it's like, y'all, like, let me do the work because you're already doing enough. You're showing up every day, you know? And so in this case, it's dealing with a moment of white supremacy that I can take the time and it's like, and just put in the time with somebody on. And gosh, won't they shudder if they knew like, oh, you're, I wasn't being white supremacist. No, but like, it's the permission to continue the system. So yeah, I think it's really case by case. And it's just a matter of real community and individual respect for folks. There's also been times where, you know, Tommy will step up right away. <laughs> so, but there's times where it's like, whatever, forget these folks. But I'm like, if I put in a little time, it's for all of us. How do you, we've asked some of our people we've interviewed before, like, how do you gauge when to say, because sometimes we've talked about like when people are faced with overt racism or big instances like this, where it's so clear, you almost get a sense of their true colors. And so you can take care of that easily. But there's so many microaggressions that also happen. And it can be exhausting calling people out for every single one of those things. How do you personally gauge, like, where are you on that spectrum of speaking up and commenting? I feel like I'm a work in progress and like, I will question everything, even like all these thoughts I'm going to like have like rushing through. The microaggressions sometimes will show up at a school. Tommy actually has cited this in our parent conversations and there'll be an assumption that he's at the boss or there'll be an assumption that I'm the boss and it's based on gender and racial because we're both really strong, powerful, positive show-ups, and how people will greet me but won't greet anyone else. These microaggressions before our concert actually just indicate to us the adults in the school are not doing the work, so we show up for the children. In those moments, we don't say, hey, I noticed you didn't greet anybody. I don't know if that is what we should do, We because sometimes it's shared later. That person didn't even say hello to me. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> Maybe we should just have little cards we hand to them. Hey, like something you did today wasn't cool. <laughs> I don't know. Because it's like we're not there to deal with every part of it. It's like, hey, that doesn't feel good, but we love your children. Like, I don't know. It's a good question, Sarah. It's not a. And then sometimes people don't necessarily want them, want to be advocated for in that moment. It's like, man, just let it go. Not worth it. But is everybody worth it? If you, how many microaggressions do you get daily that you're actually able to combat on your own? That's a question back to you, both of you. It'd be exhausting. Mm. And I still remember when I worked at Goldman and, you know, you'd walk down the street. And I mean, at that point, the Japanese culture was such that like, you would just get stuff thrown at you so often. And I was always told, just grow a thicker skin. And sometimes it makes it easier to go through. Like, I like that I do let stuff roll off my back because for me, psychologically speaking, I know who I, like, I'm okay, but I just observe about other people. And I, like, I just kind of, I wind up categorizing people or keeping my distance or whatever, just so I maintain my inner, like, peace. And then when it's worth it, I will point stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. I think if it, because I watch like a hawk when it comes to my kids too. And that to me is when I will definitely get in someone's face if I mm -hmm. need to. For me, and especially now being a litigator, I still get a lot of it. 
And I, depending on how bad it is, if, you know, I'll either make the decision to say something or not, but it is, you're constantly sort of going back and forth and, you know, it's, and I talked to my husband about it and he's generally like, I like to get in people's faces whenever I can and to tell them, you know, just how black I am and remind them that there's a black dude here, but sometimes it's not worth it. So yeah. But if it's about my kids, I will. Yeah. Yeah. We have a podcast coming up about mixed heritage family sharing about the microaggressions, which are actually not, that's really a disservice. Like this parent will be at a playground and somebody will assume that she's the babysitter, right? That's not a microaggression. That's like, that's very hurtful. And her family, her children are very hurt by it. That's actually a formative, hurtful system of racism. And I think you know, they the kids have language around it. The parents have language around it. I'm hoping that when people listen to it, they'll think about how they're participating in that. So that's one way that I feel we confront things is creating media that reflects it. I'm sensing like maybe in our guts, we know like this is a time where this will be received or it just needs to be put out. And then this is a time that I'm going to take just preserve myself. I'm wondering if that's a part of like a, a spiritual discernment. And I think that makes sense. I think a lot of this stuff is, any of this work is, it's necessary to be able to tune into one's gut, be aware, reflect, have that moment. So I think that makes sense that when you're involved in this field, when you therefore already have to constantly work, because there's, it's always a process. We're always all growing in this stuff. So yeah, that makes sense that it's a gut decision. It's interesting you said that about the lady, because doesn't that remind you of that guy who was the BBC presenter? Oh, yeah. And then, like, the woman busted in with the kids, and all of the comments were, I mean, it was revealing what people, who people thought that woman was in relation to the child and the man. So that was a good, like, it's just good to know what your assumption was, and check yourself. Anyway, so tell us more about your podcast. Oh, yes. We just launched a podcast. It's called So Get Me, and it's for families making change. We decided to pass the mic to the young folks in our group and in our community to for interviews, and it's a 20-minute podcast and um, features one of our songs in each episode. So the first episode talks about immigration and features the song Walls. The second one features Shine and talks about skin color, and um, that one's fun because Tommy interviews his son. And talks about, I mean, little Tommy, he's not little anymore. He's, he's 11. But he, I think it's always interesting to adults when they hear young people have such deep understanding of the systems in the world and have really good questions and do it with so much love. They're like, wow, how'd they do this? And it's like, no, that's because we as their adults in their lives, we talk to them and we share with them. And the questions we ask young people reveal what we, our respect for them, you know. And then we have episode about gender and mixed heritage. So, so far there's four episodes. I think by the time this podcast comes out, they'll all be out for you. And um, it's been a pleasure to have another way that people can get behind the music because sometimes people need more examples or just want a richer you know, fabric for things. It's almost like a little TV show, to be honest, because it has little sound bites and stuff. I think you like it. <laughs> That's fun. And then, so tell me, also speaking of music, you have a new album coming up. Yes, the album is called The Love. It drops on 808, and it is an incredible collaboration with 
a very diverse community. In some ways, I feel like it's what diversity could sound like in children's music. The Love was actually a collaboration with an organization called Our Family Coalition, which supports LGBTQI heads of households that are raising young people. And so every song is kind of rooted in their framework, which is a beautiful thing. There's about 60 guest artists and collaborators, which is a miracle and was absolutely needed because we wanted to write music that centered trans, gender non-conforming, two-spirit, non-binary kids and families. And Tommy and I are not, we're both cisgendered identified. And so we knew that to create real media, we had to meet the community where they were and find out what were the real messages that people wanted to hear in their media. Who did they want to hear singing them? And we had to recruit folks to perform with us in that way. And so it's just a beautiful, beautiful compilation. And it's very similar to Rise, Shine, Woke. There's an arc to the album. So you're going to listen to it like three, four times in a row and just be like, wow. <laughs> and that's what happened when I we finished the production. I like, you know, got the full rendering in early July and I just was speechless. I was like, this is incredible. And I say that like, I think because we're facilitators and artists, like we can be in awe of this experience of this album as if it's not us because it's the community and the brilliance of the community to have songs that talk about our pronouns, but have songs that talk about what community change looks like. And you know what, if I use like, I use too much academic words. So you just got to listen to it and you'll hear songs like black girl magic, hundred K masks. Those are both rooted from black kind of unpacking what gender has meant within the black community. There's songs like I am enough, which is about the gender binary and the singers in that are called the singing boys. They're amazing. And there's like even an 11 year old who's non-binary singer who joined us as background vocals. So there's like these magical little pieces that you can actually check our Facebook page to hear narratives of folks on the album and see like, wow, these are like real people with incredible talent. But I think it's like a culture changing piece of media. So I'm really proud of it. Yay. Congratulations. I can't wait. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So great. <laughs> maybe I'll give you a sneak peek. <laughs> hey, if you can send us a clip, maybe we'll include it right at the close of this recording. Yeah. How do people find the music and how do people find you? Definitely. Alphabetrockers.com is a good hub. And then we're also really active on Facebook and Instagram. And what I really am happy is that our media is meant to uplift you and connect you. So it's not a place for fear. It's a place for just possibility. So if you're looking for a social media break, definitely connect there too. Awesome. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you. You're welcome. I so appreciate what y'all are doing. And I hope that this is like a good consciousness raising experience. <laughs> Thanks. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast, and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there.
the skin that I'm in No, I wanna, no, I wanna, I wanna win I can wake up, kick back, walk through the world Never thinking about why You put limits on my body and tell me how to live my life Listen, I'm free, so free Please don't try to read me Place me or displace me You cannot erase me The sky is the limit and that's where I'm living Please don't try to read me Place me or displace me You cannot erase me The sky is the limit and that's where I'm living Please don't try to read me Don't place me or displace 